There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hello, Chris. Good to talk. I think this will be our final podcast of 2022. So on the agenda today, um, I would like to discuss, take a look back at the year just past, the highlights of that, take a look at the year ahead, 2023. And I know uh, probably in our first podcast in 2023, we'll be doing this in a bit more detail, but it's worth, I think, having a discussion on it today. Um, we've seen a story out of Stanford University in California, which has the hair standing on your head. It is the Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative. Um, a few years ago, while in California, I visited Stanford and spent a day just walking around, taking it in. And I have to say it was one of the most impressive places I've ever been. And um, it would inspire anybody to go out there and get education uh, but of course, it is bastion of liberalism in the middle of a pretty liberal part of the country. So you want to talk about that. One of our regular listeners has um, commented on comments I made about inheritance tax. Um, basically, he disagrees with my perspective and he agrees with the perspective of yourself. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. We got some news out of the UK economy today in terms of the size of the economy and also the Centre for European Reform um, has published data showing that the British economy is 5.5% lower than it would other, otherwise have been due to Brexit. So I think a discussion on that. So I will start by taking a look at 2022 um, it was a phenomenal year. We started back in January um, thinking about inflation. We'd just come through 
the second half of 2021 as economies reopened after COVID, as we saw a strong rebound in demand everywhere. Repressed demand came back very, very strongly, came up against serious supply constraints. Inflation took off. But the view back in January, particularly of central bankers, was that this would be a transitory problem that as demand leveled off during 2022 or normalized and as supply start to come back on track, you would see the high inflation rates uh, gradually moderating to the sorts of levels we saw pre-COVID in the event. And and of course, on the back of that, central bankers did not believe they would have to do very much, if anything, on the interest rate front. Uh, Then, of course, on February 24th, we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine and um, the whole world has fundamentally changed since then in many different ways. But <clears throat> inflation has become quite embedded in the system. Uh, you know, we saw in October of this year, particularly inflation rates being achieved that we hadn't seen in 40 years in some jurisdictions. And of course, the big change in 2022 was the dramatic pivot by global central banks Uh, The Federal Reserve, starting in March, increased interest rates seven times, taking its key federal funds target rate from zero to a current range of four and a quarter to four and a half percent. The European Central Bank increased interest rates four times between July and December, taking rates from zero to two and a half percent. And the Bank of England started a little bit earlier in December 21, but since December 21, The Bank of England has increased interest rates nine times, taking the base rate from 0.1% up to 3.5% at the moment. And I think the other thing that stands out in my mind in the last 12 months, one, it's a thing we've discussed many times on this podcast, and that is the mess that is the British political system and indeed the British economy and British society at this stage. But the that really manifests itself in the quasi Quartang's mini budget, uh, which caused UK financial markets to absolutely implode, um, threatened to bring down the UK pension system, forced the resignation of quasi Quartang, and well, sorry, he was sacked, and eventually the resignation of the Prime Minister Liz Truss. So politically, you know, apart from what Putin was up to. Um, I think that was one of the more interesting developments we saw during 2022. As we discussed in our last podcast, it just goes to show the UK experience is the impact that bad politics can have on economic outturns. So a pretty dramatic year um, summed up, I guess, very simply by me there. Jim, in that summary of the year, I'd ask you a, a trivia question, a pub quiz question. Can you name all of the... British chances of the Exchequer in 2022? No, there's one I actually can't remember, that guy that was appointed for a a few days. Do you know, I'm sitting here thinking I can't remember his name either. No. Um, Yes, well, (laughs) moving swiftly Thank you, Chris. We're both in the same boat there. Maybe maybe it's uh, getting late in the day as well as late in the year for both of us, Jim, that we can't remember that. Yeah, a remarkable year. As, As you say, I think that it will be the war in Ukraine that will dominate 2022 history books. But at the very least, a rather large footnote will be the political turmoil of the UK. I want to say a little bit more about that in a moment. The other aspect, I think, that flows from 
your description there, your narrative of 2022, which is about the inflation and interest rate story, brings me back to a question you asked me the other day, which really encapsulates, I think, what has happened next year and how we might frame any thinking about what might happen next. And you asked me, is it possible that growth may not be quite as bad or indeed economies be more resilient than we currently expect next year? Because obviously a lot of expectations about growth and inflation were very wrong this year. And of course, the trivial answer is, yes, growth could be anything this year. All forecasts could be wrong. But the slightly less trivial answer was that if growth is more robust than uh, forecasters, including me, currently think for 2023, central banks will move to make our original forecasts correct and raise interest rates by even more than we currently think, so that growth will eventually come down to bring the inflation story down. Now, of course, one way that narrative could be completely wrong would be that growth could turn out to be more robust than previously thought. And at the same time, in a kind of an immaculate progression for the economy, inflation come down all of its own so that interest rates don't have to go up. And with the two surprises, the joint surprise for 2023, looking at existing forecasts, would be that a growth is robust, or at least robust relative to very gloomy forecasts, and inflation comes down so quickly that central banks don't have to raise interest rates by very much. What do you think? I'll turn the question around to you. What do you think about that possibility? How likely in your range of scenarios would that be? I've been looking at a lot of official forecasts, and there's quite a bit of agreement, which is always something to worry about about the first half of next year with China in trouble with the United States, the United Kingdom and the Euro area all experiencing very difficult times. And the, the mention of recession is a very real one at this juncture. On the other hand, uh, pardon the pun, if you look at the, the real economic data, I mean, labor markets are incredibly strong still. The Eurozone unemployment rate is down at 6.5%, the US rate at 3.7%, the UK rate at 3.7%. The rate of unemployment here in Ireland is at 4.4%. So a lot of economies operating at very high levels of labour utilisation and virtually at full employment and labour scarcity and recruitment and retention issues um, have dominated and are dominating many businesses around many countries at the moment. So, you know, that's that's a strong situation for the global economy. And if you look at most of the other data, actually, I, I think with the exception of the UK, and even in the case of the UK, the Bank of England last week um, expressed a view about how resilient domestic demand still was in the UK economy, despite everything. So there's not a, a lot of economic data out there at the moment suggesting that Europe, the, um, the United States are about to fall off the cliff. I'd be more worried about the UK largely for political reasons. But I, I think there is a possibility that actually um, the first half of next year could be a lot like the second half of this year. Um, you know, a lot of nervousness, you know, interest rates rising a, a bit more and so on. Uh, but not seeing the sort of global economic fallout that we saw back in 2007, 2008. Um, I know this is all totally caveated with the uncertainty around the Ukraine war. 
and um, anything can happen in that regard at this stage. It could escalate significantly again, depending on what Putin does. That could have further significant disruptive impacts on energy, on food, on industrial metals, construction materials, etc. So that that could really set the global economy into a tailspin. But assume, well, I won't assume, but if the Ukraine situation just continued to uh, rumble on as it's doing at the moment, well, then, you know, I think the global economy in the first half of next year might not be quite as bad as the more negative prognostications out there at the moment. I could be proved wrong within a month, but uh, that's just my gut instinct at the moment from looking at the data. Yes, well, I think forecasting is always a game that makes us um, humble. Our forecasts will always humble us. We see what things turn out, but I have a hunch that the um, you're right, that things are looking already a wee bit more robust, with the exception of the UK, of course, because we've had data today saying that the most recent quarter for which we have data, which is the third quarter, uh, the economy shrank by 0.3%, a bit bigger than previously estimated. And that means that the UK really is the only G7 economy by a long way now that is still smaller than before the pandemic started, just before the pandemic started. That has been attributed to many factors, but Brexit is obviously one of them. And it is still the case that the debate here in the UK, when you start talking in these terms about what is causing this both absolute now this negative number for economic growth, more than a hint of actual recession. That's the absolute number. But also the relative performance compared to other economies is now so poor that uh, we still get very politicised in terms of the response that you get, politicised even amongst economists. Remain-leaning economists such as myself will jump up and down and say, well, this is clearly now a lot of Brexit effect going on. We concede absolutely that it isn't entirely about Brexit, that things like the energy prices in particular, the Ukraine war in general, the lingering effects of the pandemic are other effects that are very difficult to disentangle from the overall number. Is it 50-50? Is it 80-10? We don't know. Different people have different versions of this. But I think you were looking at some recently published this week research that tries precisely to disentangle that, I think, from the Centre of European Reform. Is that right, Jim? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, The Centre for European Reform has published research, um, and I've only taken a cursory glance at this stage, but it looks pretty compelling stuff. But the basic conclusion is that the British economy is 5.5% lower due to the impact of Brexit. In fact, that totally uh, resonates with most of the stuff I'm seeing and hearing about the UK economy. There was a, a spat the other day on social media between somebody, I'm not sure who he was actually, but was basically saying that all of the negativity about Brexit was totally overdone. And there was an immediate pile on from a few people who were in the exporting business and they were describing particularly one wine exporter from the UK was uh, there's an export business in wine and he was saying that his European markets have been destroyed but tellingly he's also finding it much more difficult to sell into non-EU markets because many of those non-EU markets are now sourcing their product in the European Union, of which Britain is obviously not now a member. So the UK is being hit on both fronts. And then a number of other businesses came in with very similar experience. So there there is this ongoing, pretty dramatic 
disconnect between what the official word is about Brexit and about the real impact on businesses who are actually doing business overseas. I have to say, and we, we've said this the whole time, and listen, we, we said it back in 2016 and discussions we had at the time, way before we ever dreamt up this idea of having a regular podcast. But, you know, back then, we certainly could not see any reason whatsoever as to why Brexit would be a good idea for Britain, at least from an economic perspective. Uh, perhaps you could always argue, depending on your political perspective, that it would give the UK more political independence. I think that argument was total bullshit, to be honest. But uh, you could, I guess, build an argument about the political implications of Brexit being good for the UK. But from an economic perspective, it was impossible to see any upside. I spoke at a Brexit lunch in London back in July 2016, where I said that the only question in my mind now was the magnitude of the damage that Brexit would do to the UK economy, not the impact. It's just the magnitude of the damage. And I think everything we've seen uh, materialise since then has lived up to that. And I mean, 2022 was an absolute shit show for the UK political system. There's no doubt about that. And I think a lot of those problems can date back to that fateful decision of the 23rd of June 2016, because everything, it appears to me, from this side of the river, everything to me appears to be seen through the very poisoned prism of Brexit. 2022 was the year in which the actual hard numbers, I think, started to come in. And all we're doing is debating the size of of the Brexit effect. We're not debating the sign on the Brexit effect. In other words, it is negative. It is a minor sign. There might be a few, and I mean a few, diehard Brexit enthusiasts out there still claiming that it's positive, but I don't. I think I would struggle to identify them these days. That Centre for European Reform piece was, was absolutely fascinating in that what the researchers tried to do is create a doppelganger economy, they call it, which is a synthetic blend or an artificial economy to compare Britain to. In, in, and it did it to try, and to try and answer that relative question. And it came up with a number around about five, five and a half percent, as you say. But the range of numbers that you see out there are typically in the minus one to minus five percent. That's the range. So the CER research is at the bottom of the range. It's quite a credible number. It's consistent with the official budgetary watchdog, the OBR. Um, they published a number saying it was 4%. That was actually an average of other forecasters or economists' estimates of the Brexit effect. So you can go around the houses in all of this one and ask, well, how big has the effect been? And argue about the size of the number. But I think arguments about the sign on the number are now over. That is, as they say, is what it is. As important, if not more important for me, have been the non-economic consequences, which you very well articulated there. Whatever you thought about Brexit, six and a half years ago now, Jim, was the ref referendum date that you just quoted. We've been in this war, this Brexit war, for six and a half years, longer than the Second World War, longer than the First World War. It just goes on and on. What I think I said many times during 2022 on this pod is that nobody, whatever side of the Brexit debate that you were on, said that one of the outcomes of Brexit would be a permanent rupture in British society that the, it would divide us so much. It would leave Britain a very divided society across a whole range of issues, quite fundamental issues, and that it would end up that everything is now seen through a Brexit lens. You wonder if, if the weather turns out to be worse than expected, 
whether there would be a bright Brexit dimension to the way people react to weather. And more seriously, we, we are a very divided country. And I think Brexit, that is Brexit's most important legacy, actually. I think that's even more important than the minus numbers we have for GDP, important though they are. That's also reflected, I think, in the government. And it, you know, the government who gave us Brexit in the first place are a reflection of that divided country. And that, for me, is perhaps the biggest problem facing our rather interesting new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. He's got a party, a governing party, as we go into 2023, that looks to be a mishmash of all sorts of different coalitions. That's always the case in British politics. That's always the case in many countries' politics. Not No one political party, unless you're Sinn Féin, is monolithic and is in apparent agreement about everything. One of the interesting aspects of your politics, Jim, about your next party of government is the way that it doesn't reflect normal politics in so many other parties, not least parties in Ireland like Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle, who are coalitions of opinions, of interests, of desires, of hopes. Whereas in in the UK, we have the exact opposite to Sinn Féin. Whereas Sinn Féin are monolithic, the Conservative Party is more split, more factionalised, more divided over these issues than I think that anybody can remember. And historians do say that this, this Conservative Party is extraordinary in the sense to which it is a collection of warring coalitions that don't really overlap. And one of the reasons why Sunak is already in trouble, and I think will come into more trouble next year, is that his instincts are always to appease these coalitions, which ends up meaning that you don't know what this guy stands for, you don't know what the policy is, and he doesn't seem to have the political nous and all the political courage to actually stand up to any one of these coalitions, particularly the hard right nutcases that, that are there. So that leads and contributes to the instability and division that is Britain today. Um, I'll shut up in, in in one minute now and, and let you move on. What I've said this year has is, is been very much under the, the rubric, the headline, or the question, is Britain broken by all of these different factors, Brexit in particular, division generally? A few readers have taken me up on this and have said, you know, you're exaggerating, Chris. Where's the data for saying that Britain is broken? And I, I'll admit that it may well be the case that I'm overstating the case. Richard Portis, who's a professor of economics at, uh, in London, put it this week. He was asked this question, actually, by a New Zealand media organisation. Has Brexit broken Britain? And so the first thing I would say is that this question, at least, that I have raised this year, has more recently been raised all over the place. You see these articles, you see people talking about it, and... Even Nigel Farage, who some of us would blame for this break in Britain, has asked the question, why does nothing work in Britain anymore? So, which is somewhat ironic. Portis's conclusion, assertion, is not exactly broken, but definitely a bit chipped around the edges. So again, I make the point that just how much division is a problem, just like how big a problem is Brexit for the economy, we don't disagree about the direction of travel. We might disagree about the absolute size of the problem. Is it fundamentally broken or is it a bit chipped around the edges? Either way, Britain has a problem and the only debate really is over the size of the problem. So I apologise if I've been a bit hyperbolic in my language. When I and others like me say things like the NHS is fundamentally broken, that's not true. I put my hands up and say that that is a hyperbolic use of language. The NHS clearly functions 
people are still being treated in the NHS, but there are bits of the NHS that are clearly, clearly not working as they should. There are people dying in ambulances that should not be, and that's before the ambulance strike. And there are a whole litany of measures of hard pieces of data from A&E wait times to 7.2 million on waiting lists for operations that suggest that if the NHS has not fallen over, it too, like Britain, Richard Portis's comment, is chipped at the edges. Trying to be a bit, a, a bit more emollient in my use of language as we end 22. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical. Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I've totally bought into your whole narrative all year about it because you live there, you see it firsthand. But you know, when I can pick up from, for example, the NHS and the problems there at the moment, it is functioning, but it is not functioning very well. If you look at the waiting lists. If you look at uh, waiting time at A&E and all of that stuff, I mean, it's a system that's under serious pressure at the moment. And of course, that's all manifesting itself now in a lot of strikes across the UK and the health service, the nurses, but also we've seen rail strikes, etc. That's all suggestive, I think, of a society and a system that is seriously pressurized at the moment. If you look across the Atlantic at the United States, I was looking at the some of the footage and some of the reportage of Vladimir Zelensky's visit to Congress yesterday and the behavior and the reaction of some in the Republican Party suggests to me also the United States is a system that has serious, serious problems politically at the moment, at least. I mean, the U.S. economy will always do well because that is the want of U.S. entrepreneurs. You know, it's a real can-do type society, which personally I love, but the political system there is just so deeply divided at the moment. And looking at the reaction of some of those Republicans to Zelensky's address to Congress would put the hair standing in your head as well. It was it, it was incredible and is, is just suggestive of the civil war that is ongoing in the United States political system. Um, we This time last year, we would have been, you know, very strong about all of this because, you know, the shadow of Trump will particularly go back to the 6th of January, two years, well, 2021, it's nearly two years at this stage. But the, the whole shadow of Trump um, really brought to the surface just how divided and poisoned the US political system has become. Um, I think in the last 12 months, the my view would be certainly, I think it's a bit of a consensus from fair-minded people is that Biden actually is doing a pretty decent job, uh, that he has actually uh, done something to smooth the deep divisions in the US political system. But then, and you start to forget about, well, at least I have started to forget about the deep political divisions that Trump actually articulated 
But you then look at the behavior of some of those people in Congress in, in, in reaction to Zelensky and you think, Jesus, this is a political system that has serious problems. It was diabolical stuff. The Republican Party disgraced itself, all these members of the Republican Party disgraced itself yesterday. Seven of them uh, sat out uh, all of the standing ovations for Zelensky. The names of them, you you wouldn't have heard of any of them. I, well, I, I certainly hadn't. For what it's worth, I've actually got the names of them. And one of them, is at random, is, is a, a woman representative Congress woman from Colorado, I think, called Lauren Bobert. You ever heard that name? No. Yeah. She's worth looking up because it's always interesting to find out who these people are, what it is that they believe in and why and their backgrounds. The names are, are not, to us anyway, on this side of the Atlantic, people that we would never have heard of in the same way that, you know, people over here wouldn't have heard of your t- a lot of your TDs and you wouldn't have heard of very many UK members of parliament, I'm sure, that they are deservedly anonymous. But Matt, that, get... that finance minister we're trying to remember comes to mind. Yes, well, he doesn't actually, does he? <laughs> no, he doesn't. The, that's the problem. Uh, Matt Gutz, Lauren Bobert, Andrew Clyde, Diane Harshbarger, Warren Davidson, Michael Cloud, Jim Jordan. A list of people who, thankfully, I think, are quite um, anonymous. But this woman, Lauren Bobert, is really interesting in, in, in all sorts of different uh, ways but not least for the list of things that she believes in. Having sat out Zelensky's speech, you now know that she is, in to some extent anyway, not really enamoured by the idea of the American aid to Ukraine. She doesn't like all this money being spent on Ukraine. You wouldn't be surprised, therefore, to see her Wikipedia entry as saying that she's often described as a far-right ally of former President Donald Trump although apparently she rejects these labels. Bobert supports the claims that the 2020 election was stolen from him. She voted to overturn its results. She was one of those Congress people that during that electoral college vote in Congress to, to ratify the election, she, she said no. She stands accused of supporting QAnon conspiracy theory and some academic and journalistic sources have investigated her ties to far-right extremism. Here comes the list that I'm pretty sure that you would be able to predict. We've talked about this in so many different ways to 2022 that if you can establish one trait of an individual, for example, that they might be a Brexiteer or a pro-Trump person, the list of things that they are in favour of or the list of things that they're against is so drearily easy these days to predict. So she opposes the transition to green energy. She opposed the COVID-19 mask mandate. She opposed the COVID-19 vaccine mandate. She is against abortion. She's against sex education and she's against gay marriage. She advocates an isolationist foreign policy, but wants to have closer ties with Israel for religious reasons. She's a self-described born-again Christian, and she says, and this is a quote, she's tired of the separation of church and state junk and has argued for greater church power and influence in government decision-making. Isn't it really interesting, Jim, that once you know one thing about somebody, you can predict all the rest. Of course it is. Yeah, it's, it's textbook stuff. It has really been highlighted over the last couple of years. Chris, moving on to a story you brought up. Um, I read the headline the other morning, but didn't go into it to the sort of depth that you did. And that's Stanford University in California, down near Palo Alto, which is the home of many of the multinational companies that operate successfully in this country. The elimination of harmful language 
It really caused me to sit back and have a think about my own use of language, actually. To be honest, I haven't fully made my mind up about whether I agree or disagree with some or all of this effort by Stanford, by Stanford administrators, to embark on an effort to eliminate all harmful language from its, particularly its website, but also its computer code. It starts with users of Stanford's websites, and the instruction now is to say, you mustn't allow, if you are coding these websites, you can't refer to the users of Stanford's websites as users. That's because if you are a user in the United States, you might be confused with a drug addict. But the problem there is that Stanford also say that you're not allowed to say addict because that's tending to define people by just one of their characteristics. You're not actually allowed to use the word addicted either because if you say that you are addicted to a TV series or a bar of chocolate, that trivializes the experience of people who deal with substance abuse issues. This all builds on something that Brandeis University did last year, or, or maybe two years ago, I can't quite remember. And they called it the oppressive language list. They noted that, or they stated, that if you use the phrase trigger warning, which is something that people who are very into trying to help people not be harmed in any way by language or by certain types of literature, use of language that might cause them some some harm, distress, upset or annoyance. These days are supposed to contain trigger warnings, but you can't use trigger warning anymore, according to this latest edict, because the uh, the word trigger suggests, tells, so it gets very circular. So people know that something bad is coming and that in and of itself, without actually knowing what the bad is, or even reading or seeing what it is, they get distressed, they get stressed, they might get traumatized. So you, you must try to be more gentle with your warnings about the possibility that you might suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder in five minutes. So it's all very, very weird. And there are lots of other things that they are suggesting we should not use. One of the thing, one of the phrases that we're not allowed to use if we are a Stanford University type is, the, is one of my favourite phrases. This is the thing that's caused me to go away and have a big thing, and I haven't fully concluded yet. I'd be interested in your thoughts. I'd be interested in our readers' thoughts. But that phrase, which I use quite a lot, is rule of thumb. And what I use it for is always to try and, when I'm talking about, if this happens over there, generally speaking, what happens next is this. It's a rule of thumb. It's an approximate guess. It's not intended to be anything precise, there's a range of possible outcomes, and it is based mostly on our sense of the past. Uh, Hopefully, it's data-based, and the data suggests that this is the consequence of what we've done, this is what is going to happen next, but it's a rule of thumb. It's a way of describing an approximate guess, if you like. But apparently, according to Stanford, rule of thumb comes from old English from hundreds of years ago when the law allowed you to beat your wife, but the implement with which you were allowed to beat your wife could be no wider than the width of your thumb. And that was the rule of thumb. So you're not so clearly, I mean that would be if if the words rule of thumb evokes in some way that violence against women point that that, that would suggest, it, it is very inappropriate. Let's let's be honest, that if I use that phrase, rule of thumb, and any of our listeners immediately think about violence against women, then I should clearly stop using it. But um, up until I read this article, I had no idea that this was the original derivation of the rule of thumb. So I started to try to think about the use of language generally. 
And of course, the language's meaning changes and evolves through time all the time. And, and there must be lots of phrases and words that have origins about which we know nothing and nobody knows really. So I wonder just how many people are triggered, sorry to use that word, um, but are cause harm when I use the phrase rule of thumb, because certainly before this uh, article appeared, I had no idea just how uh, th about its roots. And I don't know how many other people know about its roots either. So if the practical import of me using the phrase rule of thumb means that nobody is harmed, then I think I probably would be allowed to get away with it. But now, of course, that this has been publicized. Somebody somewhere could possibly be harmed by my use of the phrase rule of thumb. But, and here's the but, I went away and used the new chatbot, GPT 3.5, as it's become called, to actually ask the question, where does the phrase rule of thumb come from? And I got a little essay back from this artificial intelligence system that said, yes, some people think it is rooted in the way that Stanford say it is rooted, that it comes from that old English custom to do with violence against women, awful that it is. But there are other language experts that say it isn't. It's got nothing to do with that. So there is a debate. So that left me feeling very confused. So Jim, as the arbiter, final arbiter of, the, of Chris Johns' use of language on this podcast, do you think I'm allowed to say rule of thumb anymore? I find all of this extremely frightening and disturbing, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, As you know, I, te I teach economics in UCD and Smurf at Business School. I was doing a lecture recently on GDP as a measure of economic activity and the deficiencies. And I was talking about, and I had the word out of my mouth before I realized, actually, I'm not allowed to use that anymore. I referred to the black economy. Um, it's now to be called the informal economy, as far as I know. But it's it's just quite extraordinary how people can interpret your language in whatever way they can take maximum offense from. So it, it scares me, Chris. And um, I think it is scaring a lot of people. They're afraid to go out there and say anything at this stage in case they offend somebody. And, you know, the vast bulk of us, and I would include myself in this, I would never, ever deliberately offend somebody. I might end up defending people, but it certainly would not be deliberate. And I think the majority of people are like that. So to take them up on the use of language, I just find utterly scary. It, it does disturb me, to be perfectly honest. And um, I've learned so much from you in the last five minutes that I was not aware of, such as the origins of rule of thumb and so on. So I don't know. I, I just think... This is taking us to a place that's going to become very, very dangerous. Chris, we better wrap it there. Can I ask you a question? How was your 2022 personally? Oh, gosh, um, it was great from a number of perspectives. I think the, the, the one aspect of 2022 that I liked is that I was able to travel again. So I've been uh, away a lot this year. I've been in specifically in Canada a lot. That's where I'm from originally. I've also been in France a lot. Uh, I will be in France again in a few days' time, for example. That, speaking personally, is 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 has been a great comfort. And the one thing I would say to you, Jim, is that having travelled a lot, I can tell you an awful lot of other people are doing exactly the same thing. And one of the bits of inflation that is going to stay with us, and I think get worse next year, is going to be airline prices. But obviously, 2022 has been, from a geopolitical perspective, and therefore how it affects me personally, in terms of you know how I feel about the state of the world, a big disappointment because I think the Ukraine war is the most obvious thing to mention there. But the way in which the society in which I live in the UK has become fractured, that does affect you as an individual. 
So, a curate's egg, good in parts. How about you? And what was your favorite book? Oh my god, I read I read so much, Jim. I, my, my my one of my sons always asks me about my favorite this, that, or the other, and, and books. And I, and I try very hard not to have league tables, but usually my favorite book is the one that I'm reading at the moment. And the one that I'm reading at the moment is a very long biography. Uh, it was originally published in three volumes, actually, and it's Robert Skidelsky's biography of John Maynard Keynes, and I'm loving every minute of it. Excellent. My favourite book was one that I've spoken about on this pod. Uh, it was the San Francisco by Michael Schellenberger, and it's it's about the whole liberal agenda in San Francisco, the impact it's had there. Um, I found it fascinating. My year itself was, you know, a pretty good one, really busy work-wise, probably too busy on many occasions. Very happy with the way our podcast has evolved. And in that context, I'd like to compliment you on two recent podcasts you did, neither of which my diary permitted me to take part in. Unfortunately, one was with Noah Smith and the second was with Ben Watts during the week about energy. So compliment you on both those. They're excellent. I think um, the one we did with Chris Gray, um, I really loved and really enjoyed that. And I hope in 2023, we uh, get a few more interesting guests like that on the show. Um, I, like yourself, did quite a bit of travel. I was in Portugal a couple of times. I was in the States. Um, I did a lot of hill walking here, uh, particularly in the first half of the year. Um, I did the Dublin City Marathon. So I achieved a lot of stuff that um, I like to do. So, yeah, a good year. And, and of course, uh, probably the highlight from a sort of an arts perspective was the um, Bob Dylan concert in the Three Arena in early November. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, thankfully, my younger son was with me to, you know, see a living legend performing. So, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty decent year. But I, 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 I'd agree with you, actually, what was happening um, at an international level was just very disturbing. I mean, the stories out of Ukraine and you know, out of Russia is just disturbing stuff. But overall, um, you know, a, a decent enough year. Um, and if 2023 was a repeat for me personally, um, I'd be quite happy. So, Chris, I'll hand back to you in a sec. But first of all, I'd just like to thank all of our listeners to the podcast. Uh, they've grown in number quite dramatically over the years. So that's great. I'd like to thank them all. Um, and I particularly like to thank all those who come on board and make comments, many of which I certainly don't get time to respond to, but we get some very thoughtful comments in there. We obviously try and address some of them in pods that follow, but uh, it is really appreciated. And whether they agree or disagree with us, it's great to hear that sort of feedback. So thank you all very much. And I hope you have a great Christmas and a fantastic 2023. Look forward to talking to you in January. Likewise, Jib, you have a great one. And I look forward to continuing our discussions next year. As you say, we're very grateful to our listeners for the time that they spend on this pod, the interactions that we have with them. And long may it continue. That was one of the nice surprises of 2022, I guess, is that the success of the pod, which only started in the previous year, continued. And it's been a, a straight line upwards all, all through the course of the year. And so a big thank you to everybody and uh, happy Christmas all of our listeners. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, 
cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.